Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle and talking today with Dr. Nathan Cohen, founder and CEO of Fractal Antenna Systems. Welcome, Chip, as he's better known. Hi there. Chip is a physicist, radio astronomer, and inventor. And although he's contributed to many areas of science, he is most notable for his contributions to the field of electromagnetics being responsible for hundreds of technical papers and patents. He is an inventor of fractal antennas and fractal metamaterials, holding the source patents in these fields, and in my mind, known for developing the invisibility quote. So you have a very wide background in many different areas of science. Can you tell us a little bit about where you got that knowledge from and who are some of your mentors and kind of your knowledge base? Sure. Um, I, I actually think it's, it's useful to mention that, Pat, because my path has been slightly different from the stereotypical path that that many PhDs and engineers take these days. And I want them to understand that they always have the option. It isn't just uh, one way of approaching how to make new stuff. So my background is that um, although I was an inventor from a very young age, I was discouraged from doing so because that's when not, not what little kids do. Ironically, today, of course, we send kids to STEM schools to become inventors. But back in the 1960s, that really wasn't the case. It was more like, well, think about that after you grow up. So uh, although I was uh, not encouraged to be an inventor, that doesn't mean I wasn't thinking about inventive thoughts. And um, the first time this really came up as an issue for me in a big way was in high school. Um, I had taken uh, what's now called SAT two test in physics and studied for it myself uh, my junior year of high school. That would be third year. And uh, my school only offered physics uh, on the fourth year. So I took this test and I scored an 800 on it, which is the perfect score. And apparently as a result of that, the superintendent wrote my physics teacher this wonderful letter uh, commending him for his excellent teaching and so on and to keep up the good work. Uh, so when I, I came in in September to start my senior year and take his physics course, I went into his office, he called me in and he screamed at me and he said, you haven't taken my course yet, you shouldn't have done this, you needed to wait and there are obstacles to your knowledge base and this and that. And this is when I realized that I was going to have to do most of my learning myself and that uh, the uh, objectives of the teacher or mentor may not be exactly the same as what I had in mind. So at that point, I had a healthy, how shall I put it, a, a healthy uh, uh, image of skepticism of who my teachers were and what they could do. So it's been kind of tough for me to really have mentors, even though I've had several. Uh, the first one was uh, Jack Pierce, who was a uh, at Harvard, Jack invented Loran C and Omega. And I was lucky enough to be able to work with him as a high school student. And uh, he taught me all about antennas and electrically small antennas and so on, even though that work was at VLF. The next real mentor I had was when I was pursuing my PhD at Cornell. Uh, and my thesis advisor was Frank Drake. and. Uh, Frank was a very, very bright man and uh, extremely generous, and he realized the best thing to do was to stay out of my way. So uh, we had actually a lifelong friendship based on the fact that 
uh, he understood that uh, I, I really needed someone to occasionally keep me in the right direction, but basically uh, let me do my own thing. From him, of course, I learned radio astronomy. And then I worked with Erwin uh, Shapiro, who at that time was at Harvard and um, learned a tremendous about, amount about uh, arrays, antenna arrays and array science. And uh, in fact, I did my thesis work at Cornell while still working with Erwin Shapiro. And that was on very long baseline interferometry, uh, call it arrays, uh, on gravitational lenses. So I really was uh, deeply involved in the whole notion of uh, sensors and imaging. And finally, some of the other people who've really been helpful to me was uh, Benoit Mandelbro, who was the founder of Fractals. And uh, we, we somehow hit it off after an initial conversation. And he was quite a bit of a father figure for me uh, quite a, for quite a long time uh, while I was uh, especially a professor at Boston University. And other people have been very helpful, uh, include Gordon Pettengill, who was a radar astronomer at MIT, and uh, Eli Bruckner. Uh, of course, uh, everyone knows who Eli is, and uh, we very much miss him. But he was uh, very instructive and helpful to me in a number of ways, especially in talking about and learning about metamaterials. So those are the people that really were my mentors. And from them, I learned uh, a broad range of knowledge on uh, opportunities for exploring without being constrained by over-focusing on, on one particular area. And because I felt it was fine to acquire that knowledge base, it made it really easy for me to synthesize things together without someone saying, oh, that's crazy, or you won't be able to get a grant to do that. I just went and did it. So you invented the invisibility cloak in like 2003. You know, what led you to discover and develop that technology? Yeah, thanks for asking, because this is a little bit of a, a controversial subject for a number of people, not particularly for myself. So let me go into that. Uh, the idea of, of being able to uh, essentially use nonlinear radar to pick up these hash of products above and below the passband of a cloak or a stealth metasurface is very old. I actually thought that up at the same time that I came up with the invisibility cloak. And before I go into the detail of how that was done, let me give you the ethical dilemma that I had at the time. Uh, I was uh, working on a project for DARPA, DARPA funded, to do what now would be called ultra-wide band arrays. We did that successfully. And we were also exploring the notion of super gain on arrays and how close can you get elements to one another uh, in order to get uh, super gain and what would be the uh, disadvantages. And what we discovered, and I believe it's shown in... Uh, there's a picture here that's going to be going at the end uh, on the PDF. Picture number two, uh, what we did is we made a, a metasurface antenna, not just a passive reflector, but a metasurface antenna and phased that up. And the elements, which were fractal, were very close to one another. They're about a 16th of a wave separation. And of course, the common sense is that super gain antennas with that kind of spacing of elements would not work because they would have zero bandwidth or something approaching zero bandwidth. But what we discovered is that wasn't the case at all. You did indeed get super gain on the order of three or four dB, but you also had reasonable bandwidths. And the reason for that is that on arrays, the bandwidth limitation 
uh, on supergaining is caused by not just the separation of the elements, but the size of the elements. It's kind of a capacitive effect on the mutual coupling. So if you're able to make the elements small, and with fractals, we made them about a, oh, an eighth or a tenth of a wavelength, then what you get is much less mutual coupling and you're allowed to get them much closer. So the bandwidths we were getting were totally inconsistent what uh, people had previously said about supergain antennas. Uh, we were getting at least three or 4% bandwidth. And of course, we, we've experimented since then to get much wider bandwidths. The result we got, by the way, um, and let's see, which picture is that showing up on? I think I said uh, picture two. What you'll see is, is you'll see that antenna uh, phased up and you'll also see a power pattern in azimuth. And what you'll see, of course, is the main beam. And then there's these two lobes that are at, uh, at a right angle and they correspond to the edge of the antenna. So when I saw that azimuthal pattern, I said something really weird is going on. And in December of 2003, I realized that what I was seeing was uh, evanescent uh, emission generating surface waves. Surface waves come to a discontinuity at the edge and they radiate. But the point is, is that they weren't side lobes. They were bona fide surface waves caused by the evanescent effect of having very close elements uh, next to each other. I then realized that if you could generate the RF coming out on the sides, not just coming out straight ahead, then if you curl that around in some kind of shape, for example, a cylinder, but not limited to a cylinder, that effectively you would be able to generate uh, RF coming out on the other side at the antipodal point. And that essentially means you're producing front scatter or forward scatter. Now, no one's been able to successfully generate a, uh, a highly efficient front scatter system uh, until that time. So I actually did that experiment and that's when I realized I had produced an invisibility cloak <laughs> because now basically you could see the other side of an obstruction. And after thinking about this for a day, I was really troubled by it because I realized that despite the fact really like the idea of Harry Potter and invisibility cloaks that it also could be used in a very dangerous way. And I mulled what to do with that. And I decided, first of all, to come up with a, a countermeasure, which we're now reporting. And second of all, to, um, to try to understand if I didn't want to publish that right now, if I didn't want to submit a patent. And the fact is, I had decided at that point to sit on it. So from 2003 until 2008, I decided that I didn't want to do anything with the invisibility cloak. Now, by 2006, people were being able to, to do something like a cloak at a single frequency. And I realized I'm going to have to do something about this. So I did file for the patent in 2008 on the cloak. And of course, uh, since that time, we've secured the patents, 16 patents now on invisibility cloak technology. And... Uh, I, I can't tell you where they're being used, but I will tell you that the idea of, of the countermeasure at their being abused was always on my mind. Uh, and then in 2018, I'm not trying to pick on anybody on this, but it's just a factual reality. Uh, there was a TV show that came out from People's Republic of China that's available on YouTube. And 
what they were talking about was the use of metasurfaces uh, for stealth to retrofit their jet fighters. They then showed a metasurface, which was my metasurface. So at that point, I realized that's it. Uh, the ethical issue has really come to light and uh, I filed for the patent. So I sat on the countermeasure for 15 years. And of course I sat on the actual cloak for several years. Now I know everyone still thinks invisibly cloaks are cool, but the reality is, is we have to think about what it really means to be able to universally hide things. And uh, that is the ethical dilemma. What, what is the proper way to use that technology? And now Fractal Antenna Systems recently announced it secured a patent on the method to detect invisibility cloaks and related stealth metamaterials. And that prevents hostile military assets from being hidden from radar and decreasing the potential for sparking conflicts. So Chip, can you tell us about how you developed this method and how it works? First of all, thanks for having me on, Pat. Appreciate it. This is kind of an interesting discussion because it brings up some ethical issues about uh, the role of engineers and inventors. And that's that's one of the, the main things that, that drew me to the possibility of being on today. So uh, basically the, the idea is that uh, metasurfaces, which are, are thin layers of metamaterials, um, have an unusual property in that they generate a tremendous number of nonlinear products. That is to say their properties as metamaterials generate uh, heterodyne products and harmonics and things that are subharmonics that essentially produce a forest of uh, nonlinear hash as you go up and down in frequency. So obviously on something like a, a, a communication system where you may need, for example, low PIM, this is exactly the opposite of, of what you wanna pursue. But if you uh, use these metasurfaces in order to decrease backscatter, uh, you find that there's a passband that uh, the metasurfaces work at, but above and below that passband, you have this forest of this hash, essentially, of uh, intermod and nonlinear products. So the point is, is that you can develop a radar system, which is akin to uh, a harmonic radar. I like to call it a harmonic radar on steroids. Uh, that is capable of detecting this uh, many uh, fold forest of uh, nonlinear products above and below the passband. And by doing so, essentially, you're able to uh, detect an object which otherwise would have a very low RCS. Uh, now, the motivation for this, which we'll get to in a second, is purely one of what is the value of using metasurfaces for stealth? And the answer is, is that it has been radically abused by a number of countries uh, in order to find a cheap solution to make uh, vessels and planes and so on and drones easily uh, non-detectable by radar. And in my opinion, uh, as the inventor of, of these metasurfaces, especially the fractal ones, it's profoundly upsetting to me realize that there's this application uh, because the, the people, frankly, who are making the decisions on their use uh, may or may not have the wisdom to know whether or not it should be used. Now, there's other forms of stealth, of course, 
But the point is those other forms of stealth, and there's about a dozen others, uh, are much harder to make and they're much more expensive. So it requires a lot more thought about where they're used and when they're gonna be used. What I like to say is that there's an analogy to using the metaservices for stealth, and that is it's akin to people making uh, 3D printing of uh, bump stocks for handguns. I mean, we all know it's wrong to turn a handgun into an, a semi-automatic weapon, but people are going and doing it anyway. If it wasn't so easy, they wouldn't be doing it. So uh, my equivalent to that in stealth is saying, we shouldn't make stealth so easy that uh, just about everything is going to have a stealth property uh, and therefore invite the potential for conflicts. Yeah, well, you've done a great job by uh, bringing this to everybody's attention and developing a system. So what type of system would be needed? You know, what is the bandwidth of something like this that uh, you could see the hash outside of that bandwidth? Well, the cutoff frequency for a metasurface is determined by the spacing in wavelengths uh, at the highest frequency between uh, each of the cells. Sometimes they're called scatterers, sometimes they're called uh, atoms, which is kind of bizarre to me, but that's the phrase that means. <laughs> the bottom line is they're resonators. So if you look at the scaling on, on some of these metasurfaces, if you figure out what the, the smallest separation is, when that corresponds to about a 10th of a wavelength uh, at the highest frequency of use, that's the top end of the passband of the stealth characteristics for that metasurface. So above those frequencies, you really, especially, you really have the capability of trying to see this hash of products. However, keep in mind that uh, what you're really saying is let's say you're transmitting within the so-called passband of the, of the metasurface and its properties for stealth, um, you're not trying to transmit above that cutoff, you're trying to transmit at the frequencies that you're normally using. However, if you have a much broader receiver, uh, then you have the capability of seeing these nonlinear products far above the passband. And in addition, because your beam may be much smaller, uh, you're less subject to uh, the background noise, especially the celestial background noise. So your, your signer will be much higher. Your signal noise will be much higher. So in addition, keep in mind that it's likely that there'll be a transmission uh, of this kind of nonlinear radar system, which will itself be coded. And by doing that, you can filter out uh, things which don't meet the match filter of the code. So it sounds like they should be very weak, but there's so many of these uh, byproducts, especially for metasurfaces, that it actually is fairly easy to detect them if you have a modified receiver system for your radar that uh, is able to search them out and uh, integrate uh, the whole series of them. So metasurfaces are a huge field at this point. What is the advantage of using fractals? That, that's a very good question. And uh, it manifests in two ways. First of all, uh, again, if you, if you look at that, what's sometimes called the scatterers or the atoms or the resonators, if you don't use fractals, then their benefit as properties are going to be 
somewhat compromised by the fact that their size is going to produce mutual coupling. And what you want to do on metamaterials is have as little mutual coupling between these uh, atoms or scatterers or resonators as possible. So you need to make them small at the same time you want them to have high efficiency and be able to do what you want them to do. Now, fractals have a natural ability of shrinking sizes and in addition, adding uh, many resonances for bandwidth. So the main advantage in using the fractals is that you have uh, a dramatic increase in bandwidth and you still maintain high efficiency. Uh, in addition, if you're looking to do this evanescent wave, which is of course what you try to do, especially in cloaking, you get a highly efficient uh, evanescent slash surface wave generated. So the main advantage is that the smaller size allows you to use broader bandwidth and allows you to take advantage of the metamaterial spacing to get a very efficient metasurface system. What are some of the other non-cloaking applications of the fractal metasurface technology? Well, there's quite a few. I mean, uh, a metasurface isn't used just for stealth. That is, it's not used just to decrease backscatter. If you do the spacing properly of the scattering elements, that is the resonators, and the spacing of whatever it's going on, say a surface, then you end up what's called super scattering. And that another name for that would be, of course, super gaining. Essentially, you get a high gain reflection of between three to 15 dB enha enhancement just by virtue of having this skin-like surface. The advantage there is you now can come up with systems that actually have an increased radar cross-section. Uh, and you need things like that, for example, in uh, road ID uh, identification on autonomous vehicles with radar. And uh, it's also a real boon for satellites. In fact, on satellites, you can do a coding uh, in frequency of the radar cross-section and essentially make a, a license plate uh, out of super scattering for, for a given satellite. Yeah, you've really applied this technology across many different products, so very interesting applications. So uh, when, I, when I came up with this patent, essentially this countermeasure on metasurfaces, the objective wasn't to close down um, a whole field of, of opportunity. The, the, the reason for doing it is that stealth has to be done in a way that's, that's measured relative to its objective. You can't make it too simple or too inexpensive because that, as I said, invites the opportunity for things to happen that you might not wanna happen like conflicts. Unfortunately, this point of view is really borne out by world events as we look to the other side of the globe. And I do hope that, that all of my colleagues doing metasurfaces will appreciate the fact that what we do is A, important, and B, requires our responsibility of thought as to how it should be used and how we're going to implement it. Well, Chip, you took a very ethical approach to all your research and we thank you for doing that. You held back the patent for many years and then once you saw it was out, you did find a countermeasure. So uh, good work on all those fronts. Thanks very much, Pat. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about your area of fractal antennas and fractal metamaterials. It's a pleasure talking with you. To our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microjournal.com. Thanks for listening.